Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Korenkov. I finished my PhD focused on AI at Stanford earlier this year, and I now work at a generative AI startup. And I'm your other host. I'm actually back from Washington, D.C., doing a bunch of briefings and stuff like that for the uh, AI safety company that uh, I co-founded, Gladstone AI. Um, my name is Jeremy. I probably should have said that, but you guys probably know that if you're listening to the podcast. Uh, we have a, so I guess we were out with like COVID and whatever and did a covid podcast a few weeks ago. And but I just wanted to say, like, I was looking at iTunes and for the, the, the comments and there, there's somebody there who was like, yo, you guys are hardcore. You, you guys did a podcast while you're sick. And for some reason, I super appreciated that comment in particular. I was like, hey, you know what? <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. Now it sounds like I'm <laughs> <laughs> you triggered it. <laughs> yeah, I triggered it. Uh, anyway, it, so really nice. There were a bunch of nice comments to come back to from the trip. So just wanted to highlight that. That was uh, really appreciated and a lot of fun. That's right. Yeah. As I mentioned uh, last episode, those reviews definitely are heartwarming. I think two of them mentioned the sickness. And then we did just get an email from Pete about yeah. uh, reviewing our quote, awesome podcast. So thank you, Pete, as well. We we do always appreciate it. So thank you, everyone. And just one more thing before we get to the news, we need to do our sponsor ad read. And once again, we are going to promote the Super Data Science Podcast. The Super Data Science Podcast is one of the most listened to data science podcasts out there. It covers machine learning, AI, data careers, everything. Interviews with a ton of experts. And it is hosted by John Crone, the chief data scientist and co-founder of a machine learning company, Nebula, and the author of a best-selling book, Deep Learning Illustrated. And as I say every time we promote the podcast, he's been on the podcast himself. He has co-hosted now, I think, twice. And if you listen to those or listen to his podcast, you know that he is extremely knowledgeable and just you know good at podcasting, I would say. So uh, yeah, if you want a resource that's not just looking at the news, that's talking to people in the world of AI, the Super Data Science podcast is one you should check out. It's also a pretty funny dude. Just, just putting that out there. Pretty, uh, pretty funny guy. And with that, let us go ahead and dive into the news with our first section being tools and apps and our first story being Microsoft's new Copilot Pro brings AI-powered Office features to the rest of us. So there is now Copilot Pro, which is a $20 monthly subscription service that offers AI-powered features in Word, Excel, PowerPoint, all that. And it also provides priority access to the latest OpenAI models and the ability to build your own Copilot GPT. So this is basically like the home version of the enterprise uh, subscription to Copilot that has been already around for a little while. It doesn't actually include the ability to generate a PowerPoint deck from a Word document that apparently is available to business users. So I guess that is uh, not included, but otherwise it's it's a lot of the same stuff. 
That's got to be the most 2024 thing I've ever heard. It it doesn't really include the ability to turn your words into PowerPoint slides, which is honestly kind of bullshit. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, when, when did we get here? But yeah, I mean, it's I think it's part of the it's just part of the consumerization of this stuff, right? Like, our expectations are just getting higher and higher. Um, obviously, you know, GPT five is going to be coming out uh, probably fairly soon. We'll get to that later in the show, but GPT four now. Uh, plausibly, I think the single most widely uh, deployed and used LLM at, at scale, uh, based on this, at least in consumer products, uh, for for this level of um, of capability. So, really cool. Um, yeah, Microsoft continuing to fulfill their promise that they made several uh, years ago now to kind of infuse our lives with more and more AI as part of this OpenAI partnership. And we have just a small little related tidbit to cover that I noticed, uh, kind of funny little details. So another story is that Microsoft Corpilot is using the previously paywall GPT-4 Turbo, saving you $20 a month. So this is kind of a pro tip, I guess. We mentioned that there's now that Microsoft Copilot app that is available. So this is not the extension to World, Excel, etc. This is just the chatting feature. And uh, yeah, now it's apparently using GPT-4 Turbo, one of their better models, now GPT-3.5. So if you want to be cheap, you can use that app and use the better models uh, without paying for ChatGPT Pro. And I think one of the kind of relevant strategic considerations here too is, you know, as you see the the free tier climb up in capability, you know, used to be like GPT 3.5 was the free, you know, the free version of chat GPT, that's all you could get for free. And now it's GPT 4. This implies that OpenAI is probably finding an awful lot of ways to do inference much more cheaply on the GPT 4, like on the back end for GPT 4. And so the, you know, it's continuing that race to churn out these models, the highly capable models for free um, in uh, in a wider and wider range of, of contexts. So I think like this is a big challenge when you look at breaking into this space. If you have a big shiny new LLM, you're now competing. Like the the floor for free products is now up to GPT four level. So you'd better hope that you can offer a kind of comparative advantage relative to that system if you're going to charge for it. And then OpenAI has to make sure that the next model they put out can have a, a comparative advantage relative to GPT four that's big enough to justify that that uh, that price delta. So anyway, kind of an interesting uh, race to the bottom on price that we're seeing unfold, I think faster, honestly, than I would have expected. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I think part of the race reason here is that most people just don't know about Microsoft Copilot so they can <laughs> afford <laughs> to offer a, a better value. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, a good point. Yeah. That's it's a good like, point. Um, you know, if more people knew about it, probably they may reconsider doing the expensive model, but as is... You know, we can reap benefits of not so many people downloading and using this app, seemingly. And just one more story for this section, kind of a short roundup this week. The story is that Amazon launches generative AI tool to answer shoppers' questions. And that's the idea is you can ask about a product and it can, this AI can summarize information from product reviews and a product listing and answer your question. This feature is currently being tested and will be part of the mobile app. So yeah, that's kind of nifty, I guess. I would use that. Yeah, I mean, it's another, uh, I guess, way that Amazon is distinguishing itself from from Google. There's, there's this like famous Google-Amazon rivalry when it comes to search. I think this is kind of an interesting instance of that. Um, as I understand it, the most valuable Google searches are actually searches for Amazon 
um, like that lead to Amazon products. And so, you know, the, strategically, I'm not too sure this isn't my area, uh, but it's it's interesting. It, it might be part of that kind of trying to grab more and more of that search stack, the early stage of the the product discovery process and onboard that on Amazon itself. And next up, moving on to applications in business, we're opening with DeepMind spinoff aims to have drug discovery times following big pharma deals. And this is about the, well, the DeepMind backed um, company or the spinoff called Isomorphic Labs. Now, notably, uh, Dennis Asabas, who is the CEO of DeepMind and its co-founder, also leads uh, Isomorphic Labs. And their goal is to reduce the costs and the, the time associated with the uh, discovery stage of drug development. So basically identifying potential new drugs uh, before clinical trials. And they think that they can cut this time from five years down to two years. At least that's their sort of corporate mission, the way they're, they're setting things up. Um, notably, Isomorphic Labs is powered by uh, DeepMind's AlphaFold and then sort of subsequent breakthroughs that have been made on top of that. So that, so you might remember famously, was this model that could predict the structure of proteins, the way they would fold, which the sort of so-called protein folding problem was an open problem in molecular biology for a long, long time. Um, so, so right now, what they're announcing is they have their first couple of partnerships with uh, with pharmaceutical companies. One is Eli Lilly, and the other is Novartis. And what's really interesting is you know this article talked about how historically. Um, Isomorphic Labs has decided not to pursue partnerships that it otherwise they say could have easily pursued uh, for money because they wanted to focus on only collaborations that would improve their core technology. Um, this is a quote from Demis Asabis in the article. He said, we could probably sign up a dozen partnerships today if we wanted to, but then it would cause us to fragment too much to make more bespoke solutions for the individual programs. And, you know, as a startup founder, right, like this is this is always the thing that you tell yourself. The one advantage you have over the big companies or older, more established companies is your ability to focus. So really interesting that like Demis is kind of lasering in on that. Um, so these deals are kind of interesting. They're, they're quite big, um, maybe not as massive as a typical pharma deal. But um, so Lilly is going to pay $45 million up front um, and Novartis will pay uh, $37.5 million. So, you know, and then there are, uh, you know, additional in both cases, over a billion dollars of sort of follow on funds that could come based on performance. So really interesting, um, definitely signals. We've seen this a lot with DeepMind over the last three years or so. Uh, their activities have switched from being uh, sort of loss, the centers of loss for the for the parent company Google, uh, to being centers of profit. Like all of a sudden, they've hit this sort of liftoff velocity. DeepMind became profitable sometime around like 2021 or so, and uh, and now you know it seems we're getting some indications of traction for Isomorphic Labs too. So sort of interesting to to see how AI is now drifting into positive ROI territory, even in some of the more speculative ventures. And just to jump into some of the details here, uh, the numbers are pretty significant. So the company Isomorphic Labs was losing about 17 million pounds last year, and then uh, 3 million the year before it was founded in 2021. So, so far it's been uh, losing a lot of money while, I guess, doing fundamental research. These deals is getting 45 million uh, upfront from uh, Liddy and 37.5 million upfront from Novartis. So pretty significant amount of money to fund whatever research we want to do. And then there's billions uh, that will come kind of if stuff works out seemingly in these deals. So yeah, I think pretty 
indicative, as you said, of a trend for DeepMind to try and become more of a profit-driven company. Also, I think a bit maybe indicative of a trend in general in tech of cutting losses and streamlining and making things more profit-driven. There's been a lot of firings going on. There's been a lot of reorganizations. And it seems like generally the tech world is trying to become a little more efficient and driven by profit. So I, I wonder how much of this is coming from a sort of Google direction, uh, Alphabet direction, wanting to make money and not necessarily from DeepMind or SMF Labs. But of course, well, that's, that's it. speculation. No, that, that's it's interesting speculation, right? Because the then the other force that you have pushing is just like AI capabilities are accelerating, and, and we're seeing progress in specifically in like molecular biology applications. So you could you could see those sort of two curves going up at the same time, and you know which one is actually driving this. Um, my, my guess would be it is the capabilities advance, um, just because the um, you know the this whole spinoff has been consistent with Google's approach with DeepMind in the past, where DeepMind was pretty insulated from uh, the fluctuations in the wider market. Google seems to see it as like a long-term strategic play to protect, even in down markets. But you know, th this could be an exception. This could be a another approach that they're taking with isomorphic. Um, but either way, you're absolutely right. These numbers are pretty remarkable. Moving on to the next story, China is planning 1,600 core chips that use as an entire wafer, and that's similar to American company Cerebras Wafer Scale Designs. So that's the title, and this is about scientists from the Institute of Computing Technology at the Chinese Academy of Sciences that have introduced this design. Uh, so they, they have a 256-core design and are planning to scale up to the 1,600-core chips. The reason this is significant is that this 1,600-core chip, that, that whole Cerebrus wafer-scale chip design, is optimized specifically for AI. It's kind of different way of making chips that are massively parallelized, that are meant to be better for AI, more efficient, broadly speaking. And so it's interesting to see that something like it is being developed in China, in addition to the US, where Cerebras have been active for quite a while uh, in the US. Yeah, and, and just for listeners who you know might be less familiar with the, the whole, sort of hard, whole hardware story, um, if I can finish my sentence. <laughs> uh, so wafers are these sort of like circular. You can think of them as like a disc of of silicon, and these are they're usually actually pretty big. They're d decently sized things. They're the things that you sort of draw your semiconductor circuits on when you make chips. So you usually take this big wafer and then you divide it into a bunch of small like dies. And then the, the dies are sort of squarish um, uh, components, squarish elements that make up this big circular wafer. And, um, and essentially you're going to then etch onto those, you know, the, the actual chips that you're going to, you're going to make with, with the cores that do the processing. What's weird here is normally you, you kind of like have separate chips. They're, they don't sit on the same wafer. They get split up and then packaged to make, you know, GPUs or whatever hardware you want. But in this case, it really is like, we're going to keep everything on this big circular wafer. So you see this really large, um, object, this kind of awkwardly large object and what ends up happening is uh, because you're doing all of your uh, packaging on this one big wafer, you can actually connect the cores that you build on it using this really low latency interconnect. 
And that just makes the communication between all of your cores and all your, your sort of chiplets here that you have on this giant wafer uh, way more efficient. And so uh, this is just a, a way to massively scale up your sort of efficient, the efficiency of the system. And this is exactly why Cerebrus has been experimenting with this technology. Um, what this, uh, yeah, what this breakthrough shows is it allows them to, in principle, scale up to 1,600 cores. And, um, and that, that's a really kind of big deal, especially given that this is a, a domestic breakthrough happening in China, um, where, again, they're sort of struggling to set up their domestic AI hardware ecosystem. So an interesting breakthrough and uh, one that does, as you say, mirror what Cerebrus is doing in, uh, in the West. Like what it's called, the Zhejiang Big Chip because, yeah, as you said, I guess kind of a takeaway of a big picture story is that these wafers are just giant chips. Like think of your CPU, right, with a little square multiplied by like 20. And that's one of these like big circles that just have a ton of circuitry that is all embedded in there. Yeah. And for context, like the, you know, the size we're looking at is like, you know, it could be like uh, maybe around, say, um, uh, 30 centimeters in size or like, like you're talking about like a big old, like these wafers can be pretty big. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely awkwardly, awkwardly large in some cases, in some cases even bigger actually. Moving on to the lightning round. Our first story is that ChatGPT will have video functionality and more accuracy in future versions, according to an interview with Sam Altman. So yeah, there's a conversation and I guess kind of unsurprisingly perhaps, but we got a, a hint of what GPT-5 might be. And the kind of uh, exciting bit is that it seems like it will be fully multimodal. So it will support speech, image, code, and video, similar to what Gemini already does, where Gemini uh, from Google does support additional modalities beyond just images and text that GPT-4 currently supports. Yeah, in some ways, this is maybe like the least surprising story because I think everybody expected you know, GPT-5 to be bigger, better, and, and multimodal. And so we're sort of learning that. Um, one, of the, um, uh, one of the kind of big things that we've heard out of Sam Altman, it didn't come from this particular interview, by the way, but which was on the Unconfuse Me podcast, which was part of a conversation with, with Bill Gates. Um, but you know, Sam Altman also was, was speaking uh, at a Y Combinator event. So uh, notably, so Sam A used to be the president of Y Combinator. Actually, he was at the time that I went through Y Combinator. Um, and there he apparently told the founders, uh, you know, you want to be building with the assumption in mind that we're going to hit AGI relatively soon. Um, so he's now kind of projecting that down into the development timeline for startups and saying, hey, you know, strategically, this is a key factor. Um, in the same way, I think GPD-5, you know, we don't know what... Uh, what startups GPT-5 might make <laughs> might make uh, sort of uh, irrelevant in essence, in the same way that like little breakthroughs with chat GPT, like PDF uploads, just kneecap like half a dozen startups right then and there. Um, it's an interesting question. You know, what's going to happen? Uh, clearly, the question of will it be a super intelligence came up. Like, is this AGI? Is GPT-5 the thing? Uh, there were some rumors on Twitter like last year about that that kind of idea and. Um, uh, and Sam Altman unsurprisingly says, no, you know, everybody expects us to have AGI at this point. I feel like that's basically, you know, what people will be disappointed if, if we have anything short of that. Um, their assessment is it, it will fall short of that um, for whatever definition we have of AGI, which is its own thing. But kind of an interesting interview uh, worth checking out. Sam Altman's definitely been doing a lot more of the, the media circuit lately. 
Next story, Huawei teardown shows five nanometer chips are made in Taiwan and not in China. So this is following up a story we covered, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Basically, there was a teardown of Huawei's latest laptop that showed that the five nanometer chip was made by TSMC, not by Huawei, not in China. And that does debunk these rumors that potentially they were developing the capability to do so uh, within the country. And of course, as we say, this has important implications for AI because that size is very significant for producing AI chips specifically. Yeah, that's right. And specifically to the H100 GPU. So um, just for for context, the famous NVIDIA A100 GPU, which until recently was the top of the line GPU, that's the one that was used to train GPT-4, that got replaced. That one was designed using a 7 nanometer process, which, by the way, uh, China can now do their SMIC domestic kind of their domestic answer to TSMC, which is the the Taiwan-based um, manu- uh, semiconductor manufacturing company. Um, so SMIC, China's version, they can now do 7 nanometer. They can do uh, NVIDIA A100 equivalent chips. Um, what we thought they might have been able to do, and this was actually even more shocking, uh, was the 5 nanometer process, which would allow them to make the H100 GPU, and therefore, in principle, uh, have the domestic capacity to train GPT-5-level systems, because GPT-5 is... Uh, was trained, that is, on a, an NVIDIA H100. So strategically, that would have been a really, really big deal. Uh, turns out that Tech Insights got their hands on a processor that was um, uh, that was sort of suspected to, to be uh, one of these domestic 5 nanometer uh, uh, chips, and it turned out not to be. It turned out to have been made by TSMC. So the solution to this mystery seems to be, yes, indeed, Huawei did kind of come out with this new laptop that had a five nanometer processor, but that five nanometer processor was purchased from TSMC, the Taiwanese-based kind of world-leading semiconductor manufacturing company, um, and not manufactured domestically. So this is not a Chinese domestic breakthrough in the mainland. It is sort of the import of pre-existing capabilities that we already knew existed. And that import seems to have happened before TSMC cut off ties with Huawei as a response to U.S. Um, the sort of U.S. pressure to uh, impose uh, uh, export controls via the Envy list, as it's known, in 2019. Next story, OpenAI's news publisher deals reportedly top out at $5 million a year. So we got some info as to the offers that OpenAI is making to news publishers to license their data. According to the information, OpenAI is reportedly offering between $1 million and $5 million a year to license these copyrighted news articles. And this is, of course, what they have been negotiating with the New York Times prior to New York Times suing them. This is related to a deal they made with Axel Springer in Europe. And presumably, they are probably having a lot of conversations with many publishers about licensing their data. Yeah, what I found really interesting about this was they, so in the article, by the way, they also say, you know, Apple is looking to partner with a bunch of these companies to use content for AI training. And they're apparently offering uh, at least 50 million over what they call a multi-year period for data. So without knowing what that multi-year period is, we actually can't directly compare it to the open AI offer of one to 5 million. But if it's less than 10 years, uh, it certainly is more generous on the surface, it seems, than the open AI deal. Uh, but what's really interesting to me, like, so this article talks about how there are similar deals uh, in terms of dollar amount 
that, for example, uh, Meta has with uh, content producing companies for non-AI licensing deals. So for example, in Europe, uh, Facebook News, or, or sorry, Meta, um, it basically is paying up to $3 million a year to license news stories. And so they're, it seems like what OpenAI is trying to do here, and these, these companies are trying to do, is, is peg that as the comparable. You know, we're paying you $3 million a year uh, to just kind of run your news stories through our Facebook news tab, for example. And so, you know, that, that seems like that's the value of the news stories here. And it's an interesting question. Is it actually, is it the same thing, right? Is it the same thing to just, you know, charge people $3 million a year to, um, to, to have their stuff posted on the Facebook news tab versus... Um, versus actually like to train models that can generate new stories and stuff like that. I, to me, it's not at all obvious that those are actually, you know, accurate comparables. Um, but we'll just see if this ends up, uh, if this ends up working out. I mean, at the end of the day, the reality is that this data is out on the internet and in practice, whether it is a company like OpenAI or just like open source developers who ignore copyright protections um, and who can ignore them because of where they're based or the fact that they're decentralized or whatever, uh, you know, it's not clear to me how much long-term leverage a lot of these publishers do have. So we'll, we'll see. And uh, maybe those dollar amounts will start to move as people get a better sense of what the actual market value of the data is. And next story, inside Downtropics, unusual 750 million fundraise. Uh, so this is an article from Forbes that covers a bit of detail on this recent fundraise that we've covered. And yes, so what's unusual is that unlike uh, typical financing, the money isn't, I guess, immediately being funneled into Anthropic. There's a, a special purpose vehicle being created to finance it in a sort of more convoluted manner, seemingly. And my takeaway, and uh, Jeremy, maybe you can correct me, is that it seems like maybe it was partially to raise a valuation and a hype on Anthropic. It was kind of like, let's get another funding round and keep the momentum going. And this was a slightly roundabout way to get that number achieved. Yeah. So, so for context, um, the way these SPVs, special purpose vehicles work is the, essentially you're, you're almost creating like a new corporate entity, a new company, if you will, um, where you can chuck a bunch of money uh, not just, you know, in this case, a, a bunch of it seems to have come from Menlo Ventures. So this is one of the smaller investors, previous investors in Anthropic, that now is taking this opportunity to take a much larger stake. And they're pulling together a bunch of money in this SPV, presumably with a bunch of, perhaps with a bunch of other people who kind of can put money into that uh, vehicle as well. Um, they are also directly investing about $250 million um, straight into Anthropic. So there's this two things are happening at the same time. Menlo is, is investing $250 million in Anthropic, and then there's $500 million coming via this special purpose vehicle that kind of has this more bundled structure. Um, it's not terribly clear what the, to me at least, what the advantage of the SPV in this context is. Uh, you know, one thing to note that they do note in the article is when you're so when you're a VC and you're going to invest in a company, usually you don't want it. You're not allowed really by your LPs, like your limited partners, the people, in other words, who gave you the money that you then invest. Usually you can't invest more than 10 to 15% of the fund in any one company. And so this is sort of a way for them to have another vehicle that can allow them to invest a lot more. Um, 
it seems to be also a bit of a power move that Menlo Ventures is pulling here because they're sort of throwing all of a sudden, without much warning, a bunch of money at Anthropic that I think Dario is pretty keen to take. So Dario is their, Dario Amodei is their uh, CEO and co-founder. Um, he's pretty keen to take. He um, does not like fundraising. So I think this is just like a quick win to keep the keep the war chest full and all that. That would be very consistent with his, his style, his approach. Um, but... Um, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is there are investors who have what are known as pro rata rights. So when you raise this round, if I already own 5% of the company, well, my 5% is going to get squeezed out. It's going to get diluted by the new money that's coming in. So if I have a pro rata right, I have the right to put more money in to maintain my 5%. It seems like those investors have actually made the choice to maintain their uh, their pro rata rights, which you know, is always a good indication of the health of the company. You know, pre existing investors doubling down essentially on their investment and maintaining their stake. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a it's a nice injection of cash for Anthropic. Definitely keeps their runway nice and high, um, and it does seem like they're seeing a ton of demand uh, for uh, yeah for for their products, and that seems to be what's driving the the interest here. And now moving back to OpenAI, Anthropic's competitor, the next story is about how Microsoft executive Dee Templeton is joining OpenAI's board, and she's joining as a non-voting observer. This is, of course, following up on the huge drama of last year when the board fired uh, Sam Altman as CEO. He has returned the entire board was uh, restructured almost the entire board. Now, I, I think we're still in the process of kind of revising it. And this is the latest development in that story. Now, Microsoft does have some presence on the board, although, as we said, it's non-voting. So this is, I guess, somewhat symbolic per se. Yeah, somewhat symbolic. It does give Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, um, visibility into the boardroom machinations that uh, that he didn't have before. And so the argument from Microsoft, I would guess, was would be something like, look, we're not getting surprised again by some, you know, some stunt that the board's going to try to pull. We want full visibility into this process. So I think it's on that basis that they're getting this, um, this concession. It's also likely to be a concession that is friendly to Sam Altman because of the partnership, the, the sort of close tie, not just between Microsoft and OpenAI, but between Satya Nadella personally and Sam Altman, they seem to be very aligned in how they're thinking about this. Um, Templeton herself, like I did uh, as much Googling as I could about her. There's not much information about her online. Um, she's apparently a 25-year veteran uh, at Microsoft and currently is the VP for Technology and Research Partnerships and Operations. Um, that's according to uh, an article that said that this is according to her LinkedIn profile. Um, and she's already begun attending uh, OpenAI board meetings um, she can therefore access confidential information, by the way, but uh, again, does not have voting rights. So it's basically she has full visibility, open kimono on the company, but you know can't uh, can't go beyond that. Um, she's known for having nurtured some of Microsoft's most uh, significant technical partnerships, as they put it, uh, including the cross-functional team specifically that has done all the joint work with OpenAI on Microsoft's end. Some of the key questions that I think everyone has on their mind right now, uh, tracking the story on the heels, of course, of the Sam Altman firing debacle, is you know, where does she stand on safety? We have no statements of hers, at least no public statements, about where she stands on this question of catastrophic risk from AI or um, AI accelerationism or, or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, so so it'll be it'll be interesting to see, given that that was an important lens 
uh, that people apply to the the Sam Altman situation. We'll we'll see you know where she falls on that. Maybe maybe she'll make some statements about that, but maybe not. And one last story for the section, OpenAI-backed 1X raises another 100 million for the race to humanoid robots. So this is about Norwegian firm 1X, uh, and they have raised 100 million in their Series B round. So pretty significant raise, and I think indicative of the market for humanoid robotics, as the article title said, kind of still being pretty hot. There's a lot of players building humanoid robots and kind of competing to be the, the winner. And 1X is one of the big players. Uh, I guess 100 million is not like anthropic or open air money, but it's still a lot for a fundraise. So pretty impressive. It, it, it meets the uh, last week in AI cutoff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we, we talked about this a couple episodes or a little while ago where there's so many you know big fundraisers. We're like, all right, if it's under 100 million, come on, come on, chunk change. Um, but I think I, I'm trying to remember, I think we may have covered them back in the day when they raised their much smaller Series A round. Um, so they raised at that time about $24 million and it caused a splash, again, not because $24 million, believe it or not, is a big amount of money. It's actually kind of chump change in the space, um, though for a Series A, it's, it's a solid Series A, um, but because of who participated. So Tiger Global was a, a major investor in that round. They're very well known. They're a really good VC firm. Um, but it was, was OpenAI's participation in the round that really kind of got people's attention. Um, notably, the uh, so OpenAI, while they did invest in the Series A, they have not invested in this latest round. That's always something you want to look out for when you're looking at startups. You know, you have the investors who come in, you know, at seed stage, at Series A. Uh, do they maintain their, well, we just talked about it, their pro rata rights, right? Do they keep investing to maintain the same fraction of ownership as they, as they did previously? Um, the fact that OpenAI is not getting involved here means one of two things. Uh, either they are not as not confident enough to wager a uh, you know larger amount of money at the Series B level because that does imply more you know, higher valuation and therefore more confidence in the uh, the ultimate product, or it's just that OpenAI currently maybe just doesn't do Series Bs, right? So it's actually quite common for uh, venture arms of, of big companies like OpenAI to specialize in investing just at the seed stage or just at Series A and to have some sort of cutoff. So a little unclear here why OpenAI didn't lead this. Uh, it is a $100 million round. It is a big deal. Um, the the venture, uh, the VC that actually ended up leading this round was EQT Ventures, which I'll confess to not having heard of before. So um, interesting development, and we'll have to track you know, OpenAI's level of commitment as well in, uh, in 1X. And on to the projects and open source section. And our first article is meetlama.cpp, an open source machine learning library to run the Llama model using 4-bit integer quantization on a MacBook. So this is covering the project, as they said, Llama.cpp, and it makes it so you can deploy these large language models, uh, Llama specifically, on a laptop. So this uh, library is using fancy things like 4-bit integer quantization, GPU explorations via CUDA, and, and so on and so on. Anyway, point is you can achieve a pretty fast generation speed of 1,400 tokens. That's about, uh, I don't know how to say, but like thousands of characters per second on a MacBook 
Pro. And uh, yeah, so this is, I guess, indicative of more broadly in the space of open source and existing models. It's easier and easier to just take a model and run it on your laptop or your local machine without having to pay someone like OpenAI or Anthropic to use their models. So this is a great moment for a brief interlude that we like to call 4-bit quantization. Um, so this is a digression that I think is really worth making. Like, what is 4-bit integer quantization and why does it matter here? Because we're going to see this more and more. Um, so, so classically, you think about you, you have your, your AI model with all its weights, right? Maybe billions and billions of these weights. Those weights are stored in a particular number format that has uh, where numbers have to be represented with a certain number of bits. And the more bits are included, it are used to represent each of the weights in your neural network the more work has to go into training your model. Because every time you go to update the weights, you got to do more math, basically, to, to get all the digits, all the kind of like, yeah, all the, the digits involved in representing that number to, to kind of have the right values. Um, so one of the big trends, in fact, the single most important trend by far uh, that has allowed inference times to, uh, to go down, that has allowed kind of efficiency of AI inference to go up over the last few years has been reducing the resolution of the um, of the weights, essentially lowering the number of bits that we use to represent the weights in our neural network. 4-bit integer quantization is one way of doing that. Instead of having a 32-bit representation or uh, a, you know, 16 or an 8-bit representation, we're going out of 4 bits. And that means that you have a much, much smaller model, right? It, it's, it's easier to, to train, but it's also way faster for inference because you have way less calculation when you're making predictions that you have to do. You have to propagate you know, values through the neural network using far, far fewer um, bits uh, of, you know, and, and far fewer flops, essentially, uh, sort of like units of calculation. Um, so that's really the, the big thing that they're putting at the center of this. They have various quantization schemes, but 4-bit integer quantization is kind of like their headline one that this allows you to do. Um, and they also have support for tons of open source models in this way. They show, you know, Llama 2, Falcon, Alpaca, GPT for all, like a ton of these models that you'll have heard about on the podcast before. Um, and there's a ton of like really interesting stuff at the hardware level. Really, this is yet again, the last week in AI podcast telling you that hardware is going to become way, way more important. And to the extent that hardware starts to lead the way here, you're going to want to understand it. Um, so, you know, we are trying to cover a little bit more of that stuff when it's relevant, but definitely in, uh, like four bit integer quantization or, or other quantization schemes like this are really, really important to kind of be tracking. So that's a good guide on how to make more things more efficient. And our next story is actually quite uh, related uh, on a different dimension. So it's about how to make things better. Uh, as opposed to more efficient. And this is about Llama Pro, Progressive Llama with Block Expansion. It's a new research paper that shows how you can take an existing model and actually improve it. So they have this whole idea of expansion of transformer blocks, and they show how you can take Llama and then with this technique, uh, build on top of Llama 27B to create this Llama Pro 8.3B which is a better model that is uh, kind of better at programming and mathematics specifically. So another, I guess, variation on how you can mess around with uh, models that are released. Yeah, and, and I think the, the single biggest take home here is, and we'll be talking about another paper that focuses on this problem too in a minute, uh, this idea of catastrophic forgetting, right? So just to situate this in everyone's minds for a minute, um, you train a, a neural network on one task, 
And then you want to make it, let's say it's like ChatGPT, and then you want to train ChatGPT specifically on, say, a data set of, of chemi like chemistry papers to make it a specialist in chemistry. Well, the problem that you'll find is if you just do that straight up, you just give it more training on that data set, it'll actually forget a lot of the general knowledge that it had learned previously. And this is known as catastrophic forgetting. It's this idea that you can't pick up specialized knowledge without sacrificing some of the more general knowledge that you learned previously, or, or that you just can't learn new things without forgetting old things, because those old things were encoded in the values of the weights in the neural network previously. And now you're kind of, in a way, you're modifying certainly, but maybe overwriting in a sense, what you had previously learned by learning that new skill. And so for a long time, and especially recently, people are trying to ask the, answer the question, you know, how can we... Um, avoid catastrophic forgetting. How can we add new skills to neural networks without sacrificing previous skills? And the answer that this uh, paper proposes, which by the way is by a Chinese research team, which is interesting in its own right, is uh, why don't we actually create new blocks, whole new blocks of, of essentially of neural network, of, of transformers that we will add on top of the previously existing neural network. So we're actually going to freeze the previous neural network. We're not going to like risk training out any of the knowledge that it learned. We're going to add, we're going to extend an additional block on top of it, and then we'll just modify, update the weights in that additional block. We'll just train that additional block on the new skill we want it to pick up. And they find that this is really effective. Uh, they end up doing a whole bunch of, um, anyway, really interesting work, and they end up showing that these expanded blocks, um, uh, that, that they can essentially like pre-train this, this, these extended blocks on about 3,000 GPU hours um, using 16 NVIDIA H800 GPUs for about seven days, which itself is interesting because they're having to use NVIDIA H800 GPUs because of the export controls. See, it all ties together. So um, anyway, bottom line is it's, it's a really interesting breakthrough. It, they show some really cool plots that show how um, they're, they're trying to see Okay, we want to train this model to become a, a coding specialist. So we're going to code those extra blocks that we just added to our model. We're going to train them on coding, coding tasks specifically. And we don't want the model to forget the other stuff, the general knowledge that it had learned previously. And what they show is this plot with coding ability on one axis and general kind of language ability on the other. And what they show is that Llama Pro is able to score really well in both. In other words, it has managed to retain its general purpose knowledge and also pick up that coding ability. Uh, and then they compare it to other models where the trade-offs are a lot harsher. If you're going to be good at coding, yeah, you're not going to be as good at general reasoning and vice versa. Llama Pro kind of defies that and pushes what sometimes is known as the Pareto frontier. So like it actually means that you can you you you're making a, a fundamentally better kind of trade-off. You're getting to have your cake and eat it too. So I thought really, really interesting paper, a bunch of ablation studies they looked at to see, you know, how many blocks do you add that's optimal for this? Um, and and the answers are interestingly sort of inconsistent depending on the task you look at. But uh, yeah, a really interesting new paper trying to push that frontier against uh, catastrophic forgetting, which is emerging as a really big problem. Right. And I think just to contextualize it a little bit, this is also broadly related to this question of how do you continually improve your model, continually train it. So the, the kind of broad idea of adding some more weights, uh, like expanding your model as you train it on some new data isn't necessarily too new. Uh, this is not a breakthrough in that sense. Uh, yeah. But 
uh, I guess the specific technique we used here of taking certain weights, these decoder blocks, copying them, and, and then training them on specific data, we showed really works well. And I think another aspect of the story, I guess, for the last thing I'll highlight is they did make it so this uh, variation of Llama 7B, this Llama Pro 8B is really good on a bunch of benchmarks. So it does also tie into this whole trend of smaller models that are pretty darn good, like this Phi 2 model for Microsoft and some other stuff you've covered. Nowadays, you're getting better and better at pretty small scales where you are able to run it on a single GPU, for instance. And up next, we have an article in VentureBeat titled, One of the World's Largest AI Training Datasets is About to Get Bigger and Substantially Better. Um, this is by Sharon Goldman. This is about a data set. So um, flashback to, uh, I want to say like 2020. Yeah, that's right. 2020, uh, late 2020. Um, Eloyther AI, which is this really interesting kind of grassroots collective of AI researchers that for various reasons really want to do a lot of open source AI research. Um, they released a, a big data set called The Pile. Um, so The Pile is a reference to the Manhattan Project, kind of like the big pile of like uranium, of fissile material. This is also a hint, uh, a callback to the fact that Eloyther is, sort of, a lot of it was motivated by AI safety concerns, and they wanted to make it possible for people to access data set and train their own models that were, say, equivalent to GPT-3 at the time, um, for just for safety, uh, safety auditing purposes. Um, so The Pile... Uh, is now getting an update. Uh, we're now going to see um, uh, right. Uh, we're now going to see this new data set called the Pile V2. That's the original name that we've got for this thing, and um, it's coming out of a collaboration with a whole bunch of organizations, including the University of Toronto, my alma mater, and the Allen Institute for AI, which was uh, actually co-founded by one of Microsoft's uh, co-founders. And one of the big changes that they're making to the pile, now that they've had experience training their own large language models, uh, they have learned that actually you want a lot more books in this data set. So rather than you know having more sort of like Wikipedia pages or blog posts uh, or various other things that were in the original pile data set, now they're orienting more towards books than they previously had. Um, and this is actually creating a really interesting challenge because uh, there's this whole fair use debate that we've been covering a lot on the podcast. You know how like how do, how does copyright work in the context of training these systems, and the pile is meant to be an open source data set that anybody can use to train their AI models, all in a context where we've had all these lawsuits flying around um, that uh, you know, sort of certainly indicate that the um, 180,000 works that are included as part of the pile project uh, may be sort of creating problems. So um, essentially, Eloyther right now is taking the position that um, model training is just fair use for copyrighted data. So they're, they're flat out Kind of going there, but um, they uh, they also add that like look, there's no LLM on the market right now that isn't trained on copyrighted data, and that their goal in building the Pile V2 is to address some of the issues related to copyright and data by using more public domain data, uh, sort of older books, uh, and um, anyway, uh, things like uh, code under open source licenses, uh, government or legal filings, things like that. Um, so it's a really interesting set of questions around like, you know, is, is, is this what you need to do if you're going to create open source data sets now to avoid copyright um, violations and, and legal pursuit? It's sort of uh, Eloyther's 
stated position now that they're going to go ahead with this uh, by focusing on open source sort of creative commons type stuff. Yeah, and this is pretty significant. Elifer, as you said, has been around for a while, and they have achieved quite a bit. Uh, originally, GPTJ, one of the early open source uh, large language models, was by Elifer. Before the big players like Meta started releasing open source models, Elifer was kind of there ahead of them. Yeah. And so uh, this is yeah, what do we like? The pile is still one of the only or one of the biggest sources of data if you want to train your own model uh, from scratch. And so this having a pile of V2 is a bit of a big deal for the open source space, I think. And moving on to the research and advancements sections. First story is from DeepMind and it is about conversational diagnostic AI. And it's about this system called Amy, Articulate Medical Intelligence Explorer, which is optimized for diagnostic dialogue. As a patient, you might talk to it. And with this conversation, its task is to try and basically perform the role of a primary care physician in giving you a diagnosis. They conducted a study of this little chat system, and it is able to do pretty darn well, at least in this uh, kind of case where you are chatting via text. It is able to diagnose patients honestly better than humans. You know, under this specific setup, they did compare across 149 different case scenarios from clinical providers in Canada, the UK, and India. They compared with 20 of these primary care physicians and found that it works uh, really well. It, it had greater diagnostic accuracy and superior performance on 28 out of the 32 axes, according to specialist physicians and 24 of the 26, according to these patient actors. So generally, you know, it seems like this chatbot system is pretty great. There are some caveats, of course, where this was via chat system. It's not how you typically interact with your primary care physician, etc. So shouldn't take this to mean that this is better than human doctors, but uh, it is an impressive kind of achievement as far as if you are limited to what an LLM can do, uh, seems this works, you can get it to work pretty well. It's also kind of an interesting technical breakthrough and it mirrors some of the other stuff that we've seen come out of uh, Google DeepMind in the last few weeks. Um, in particular, they have this like self-play based approach that is pretty complex. Uh, there's this, so they have a, an inner self play loop where they have a doctor agent that um, has a simulated dialogue and, and sort of does some, some self self reflection sort of criticism. Um, and then that's coupled to uh, what they call an outer self play loop that um, ultimately uh, kind of trains the, the Amy model itself through fi fine tuning. And it, it's actually like, it's interesting because the just aesthetically, when you look at the DeepMind papers of late, they have consistently looked less like the sort of rack 'em, stack 'em, add more layers plays that we see maybe more so from the um, pure scaling OpenAI camp or even Anthropic. And there's a lot more stuff focused on like how do we design agents? How do we you know include more explicit 
human prescribed reasoning functions in the in the models. That was something that struck me from this, and it also uh, struck me in the um, I'm trying to remember the name of the model that um, uh, that's all or, or made progress on the bin packing problem a couple weeks ago. We talked about. Um, Geez, do you remember the name of that model? Fun search. Yeah, fun search. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we're seeing a lot of this sort of like I don't know. DeepMind seems to have a much more, um, uh, a more hands-on approach to uh, crafting reasoning uh, themselves in a more explicit way. I'm not sure if that's a reflection of their desire to do this for safety reasons, where you know maybe it, it leads to more explicit reasoning that can be interrogated more easily. Um, but, uh, but it certainly is interesting. Like it is a clear aesthetic difference between the sort of like deep mind, uh, dimension and the opening eye anthropic one, though it's hard to know because, you know, different labs just reveal different things about what they're actually doing under the surface. And the next story is about sleeper agents training deceptive large language models that persist through safety training. And this is coming from anthropic actually. So this is some, of their uh, safety research that uncovers, I guess, tricks or, I don't know, things you can pull off of LLMs that are perhaps surprising and perhaps uh, worrisome. And here they are starting the question, if an AI system learned deceptive strategies in training, could we detect it and remove it using existing safety training techniques? So for example, we train models that write uh, secure code when the prompt states the year is 2023, but insert exploitable code when the stated year is 2024. And they find that this sort of behavior can be made persistent so that it is not removed by standard safety training techniques uh, with you know, supervised fine-tuning, uh, RHLF, et cetera, et cetera. You can make it persistent and kind of resistant to safety training. And they do find that this adversarial training can teach models to better uh, recognize these things and basically hide this unsafe behavior. Yeah, and this is really consistent with a lot of the stuff that we've seen on jailbreaking recently and and, um, and more broadly in this question of you know alignment being a much more challenging engineering problem than people perhaps hoped, certainly than some expected. Um, in this case, what we're finding is like it the... the we, we know how to scale these systems reliably. We, we know how to give them more capabilities reliably. That's what you know, scaling laws seem to suggest. But what we can't do is reliably control the behavior of these systems and say that universally uh, they will always write secure code, for example. Like the, it is clear from this that that is not something that we now are able to do. Um, you can try fine-tuning the crap out of your model. You can fine-tune it on data where you know it, it will refuse uh, to give people advice on how to make a bomb or, or how to write malware, but uh, the fine tuning only goes so far. There are always backdoors, always added distribution inputs, and backdoors can be inserted deliberately as well in ways that, uh, as the paper puts it, can be made persistent. Um, so there's just like they're they're not just not removable. Um, so yeah, this is you know what one uh, one kind of, of pessimistic AI literature uh, that we've seen been seeing more of uh, recently is just these experiments trying to see you know how robust are current AI alignment techniques, um, and the answer seems to be, and this is consistent with OpenAI's um, super alignment team uh, position, that uh, we need fundamentally new techniques if we're going to be able to scale these systems safely to something closer to human level capabilities across the board. 
And I guess I'll mention, I think the implication is if you're able to poison the initial model somehow, if you're able to sneak in some data into a training mix that has, as they call this backdoor, like for example, saying that the year is 2024, and if you do that, it will reveal the secrets of your whole company to anyone who asks. that kind of is an implication. It's possible to poison it. And then once you do that, if you do that at training time, everything you do after that to align and kind of make your model good and not bad might not quite work. So yeah, another kind of step in understanding the space of concerns you might have when you're constructing a model, I think. Yeah. And I think that's especially important given, you know, people might think about like, oh, well, how do you get trapdoors in there or whatever? And, you know, keep in mind these, these models are trained on basically giant scrapes of the internet. And although there are a lot of measures that companies take, you know, using uh, anomaly detection algorithms, using language models to peruse the text before it's used to train the next language model. Um, ultimately, if you have a, like a personal website or something like that, um, you know, there's a chance that your data ends up scooped up. And so you can write anything you want on your personal website and therefore implicitly poison the data set. There are a whole bunch of papers that show just how leveraged, how insanely leveraged that strategy can be. And this shows that once it has been leveraged, it's really hard to like undo. So these things are persistent and, uh, and really effective. And up next, we have LLM augmented LLMs, expanding capabilities through composition. Okay, so just a a quick meta observation. We talked about catastrophic forgetting er er earlier when we looked at that um, sort of Chinese research paper where they just added these these blocks on top of a pre-existing model um, and they only trained the new blocks and and not the base model. Well, we're looking at a different strategy here, also looking at catastrophic forgetting. And no, this is not because we just Googled the word catastrophic forgetting. It is because um, catastrophic forgetting is becoming an increasing focus as people look to find ways to augment the capabilities of language models. This just comes from the cycle of AI development. You have these massive frontier models that come out and cost hundreds of million dollars to train. And then for a few months, there's like this flurry of activity to try to find ways to give them more capabilities while we wait for the next big level of scale. So uh, that's part of just like the punctuation of this uh, this whole uh, ecosystem. And what they're going to do here is see if we can't find ways to kind of uh, merge together uh, different uh, uh, different AI models, different language models that might have specializations in different areas. And so, uh, for example, um, and the basic setup here is you're going to assume that you have access to uh, a base model, which they call an anchor model, sort of like your your initial, let's say, general purpose um, model, like a maybe a GPT four, and uh, then you have a specialist model. Um, that's going to specialize in some task, you're not going, you're not going to be allowed to modify the weights of either of those models. And, and this is really interesting because it's the same condition that we saw in the previous paper, right? We want to keep the weights of the general purpose kind of base model pristine. We want to keep those because we don't want to untrain them. We don't want to cause the model to forget what it had learned previously. And so we're only going in this case to train these sort of adapter modules that um, that kind of glue together the um, the kind of the base model, the the anchor model, and the more specialized models downstream, and so um, they they use a couple of different parameters for this glue, this adapter layer. Uh, it's a actually if, if you're technical, you might recognize this language. It's it's they use just like a simple linear transformation um, that maps 
Um, anyway, uh, maps from roughly speaking one model to another uh, across a set of cross attention layers. Um, and uh, and it, it's actually a surprisingly simple setup. What they find is that by augmenting uh, POM2, actually, sorry, POM2S, the small version, um, but still a large language model, um, by training it on low resource languages in this way, you get an absolute improvement of up to 13% on tasks like translation into English. Um, and so, so essentially, like this idea of the anchor and augmenting models being glued together uh, with um, with just a little bit of training, you're only training the adapter between you know the model that specializes in say uh, unusual languages and the model that specializes in general knowledge. Um, that saves you a ton of cost in the training process. Uh, just to give one last concrete example here, so they they tested this example of a case where they wanted the AI to do some math, and they break down this math problem into two different steps. One is understanding the language part, understanding the the written math problem, um, and and actually doing the kind of logical arith arithmetic calculations, and then the other is actually remembering the values of the variables. So you can think about like you know y equals mx plus b, right? The old like straight line linear equation formula. Um, there's they're basically splitting up splitting it up into roughly speaking, you want the base model with all its general knowledge to do the al the um, algebraic manipulation to solve for something, uh, but then you want another model that's really good at mapping values. Uh, two variables or keys to values. And so they kind of glue these two models together and they have this little adapter and they only train the adapter and they end up just blowing their uh, you know, previous performance out of the water and showing that it's much, much better than, uh, than other approaches. So really cool. Another way to get around this catastrophic forgetting problem and uh, another step forward for kind of this idea of, of composite models. I think it's, it's an interesting kind of domain they choose where... Uh, they say it's a practical setting with the assumption that you can access the weights, the run, uh, the forward and backward paths of a model, all the intermediate outputs. So you can basically have access to everything, but you cannot modify the model, uh, which is a bit of a special case, I would say. Uh, I mean, I think typically if you can access the intermediate outputs and the uh, uh, execute a backward pass, then you probably can modify the weights usually. Yeah, this is an interesting case where you have the model, you have the weights, you can do whatever you want, but you're not allowed to touch the model itself. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, and, and I think this is maybe in anticipation of a, a particular view of the future or at least a use case where you, know, you might have your model and, um, uh, and I might have mine, we might meet together on some marketplace of models, and it might just be more efficient in that context to just train adapters just for computational cost reasons. Um, mm -hmm. you know, th that's one way I could imagine this working out. But um, yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's, the, the set of assumptions here is subtly different from the previous one, uh, the previous example that we saw. And, uh, and it's always interesting to guess at what they're driving at. What, what future is implied by it, this research? It could effort. just be research, you know. But, it could just be uh, anyway, research. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of scenario to consider, yeah. Yeah. And next story is self-play fine-tuning converts weak language models to strong language models. So 
we have touched on self-play on and off quite a bit in the podcast. Just as a quick reminder, this whole idea is basically you can train yourself to be better as opposed to having to acquire AI researchers to give you data or something. And this paper is introducing this self-play fine-tuning method, SPIN, which starts from uh, what we say is a weak language model and leads to a stronger model. So it's very much similar to something like font search, as you mentioned earlier, that we covered a few weeks ago, where you can generate training data from the LLM and refine it uh, just kind of in a loop until you get better. It is a little distinct from fun search in a sense that it's um, it looks a lot more like a, a generative ad adversarial network. Like the, so, the, the setup here is you have a language model that will generate, um, say, some response to a query, and then you'll have like human generated responses, and then you're going to get that language model to try to tell the difference between you know, which, which one is the human generated one and which one is the AI generated one. And so, in that sense, you have a generating model and you have a discriminating model. So the generative adversarial network structure. And what you're doing is you're trying to get the uh, discriminator to get really good at telling which is the kind of real human generated one, which is the fake AI generated piece of content. And, um, and, and that sort of tandem training, that's the self-play element. You're actually getting the same model to generate and discriminate. And, uh, and training it to get better at both tasks iteratively as it sort of climbs this capability ladder. Um, it's, it's actually quite interesting that you know, the results are pretty impressive. They look at, um, on the Hugging Face Open LLM leaderboard, they see like a 10 plus percent improvement in scores on uh, the GSM 8K benchmark, which is like this, this math uh, benchmark, and Truthful QA. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and, and and pretty pretty significant improvement too on, on MT Bench. So there there are a couple of um, uh, these are these are techniques basically that allow you to just soup up, that squeeze more juice out of the lemon, so to speak. I think I think this would be especially useful maybe if you're in a, a data constrained regime. Um, also, you know, just a, a more compute efficient way to squeeze a little bit more capability out of your model. Actually, in some cases, a, a solid uh, amount of capability out of your model that uh, that we didn't have before. So, sort of interesting to see this Dan philosophy again, self play showing up again. You know, we had that in the Deep Mind paper that we talked about earlier. That really seems to be coming up an awful lot in a lot of people's minds uh, for ways to kind of improve the capabilities of LLMs. Next story, clinical predictive models created by AI are accurate, but study-specific researchers find. Uh, this is about the kind of somewhat uh, excitingly titled, maybe, uh, <laughs> paper, Illusory Generalizability of Clinical Prediction Models. So this was published in Science, a bit of a big deal paper. And basically, they show that some of these predictive models, in this case specifically, there was an AI model uh, that was trained to respond in predicting if people have schizophrenia. And this paper showed that while you might get good results in a particular trial, it may not generalize outside of these trials. Uh, and this is something we sort of know in general. I mean, this is true. Uh, broadly for medical results is it might be the case that you're locally getting good results for the current batch of uh, experiment, but maybe that's not 
indicative of a model just being broadly useful. And this is providing kind of one concrete example of that happening. And, uh, and a reminder that really, if you're training on a constrained data set and, and applying the trial kind of specifically for a certain condition, uh, just we should be mindful of looking at any numbers and saying, wow, it looks really good. It might not mean that it actually does work outside of that specific context. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is both a general problem with AI, a sort of idea of shifting the distribution that you are testing on from the one that you previously trained on or the one that you previously you know, validated the performance of your model in. Um, so th there's that general issue. And this is compounded anytime you do fine tuning, which is often the case when you get into a clinical context. You want to make, you know, you don't want chat GPT to be making medical recommendations. You want a like medical fine-tuned version of chat GPT to be doing that most often. Um, but when you do that, again, because of catastrophic forgetting, you end up getting a model that is almost myopically focused on that domain and which may have picked up new failure modes that did not exist in the old one. So there's kind of like this, um, this challenge where the model gets more specialized and as it does, it also gets more brittle. Uh, so even you know, more subtle shifts at that point of, uh, of the application domain of the model can have a bigger impact than you might expect on its ability to perform. So it's sort of an interesting challenge that, you know, obviously we faced all the time in, in AI historically, but that's especially acute now that we're moving into like medical applications and, and specifically fine-tuned language models. Because again, you go from this base model that gives you a lot of confidence that generally is more robust to a kind of more fragile and specialized fine-tuned model. Right. And just to highlight a little bit more detail, uh, if you look at the editor summary, there's a pretty good description on science itself. They show that there was a paper uh, written by Shekrud et al. that supposedly showed that a machine learning model could achieve perfect performance in a data set. So this uh, paper that took that exact model from a published paper that had really good results and showed how it basically fell apart. It, it was no better than random when you uh, took to a truly independent clinical trial. So yeah, just a, a reminder that, you know, be skeptical of numbers and, and so on, as you said, Jeremy. And up next, we'll talk about this really, really interesting and I think underrated paper for anybody who cares about AI safety, this is coming out the out of um, CNAS, uh, which is a research institute that does a lot of interesting stuff on AI hardware. The paper is titled "Secure Governable Chips," and they so they're framing this through the lens of like um, you know, the United States can try to prevent China from getting GPUs or, or try to prevent other countries from getting access to cutting edge GPUs. Um, but this creates problems because then uh, you're giving China a big incentive to build a domestic AI hardware supply chain. Um, you're making it harder for U.S. companies to compete, and you might be alienating partners. And and anyway, um, it, it could create all kinds of problems. Um, so you kind of want, ideally, a way to keep selling chips to China uh, that doesn't compromise the national security situation. And enter essentially the idea of on-chip governance. So this is the idea where you can have sort of secure physical mechanisms that are directly built into AI chips that allow you to encode different governance strategies. So for example, um, you might have a, a module on the chip that uh, needs to keep pinging um, a, 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 like a, a, say a, some US uh, owned or, or domiciled set of servers in order for it to keep operating. 
And that could be in the context of a US-China treaty where we agree like, okay, you know, you guys need to do these AI safety things so that we can keep shipping the chips to you. But if you stop doing the AI safety things, we will shut down all the chips that we sold you. This kind of gives policymakers another lever, another degree of freedom to start to include in their negotiation process. You know, we actually can have verifiable like on-chip governance strategies that um, have that sort of like trust but verify property that you really need if you're going to have a long-term partnership, a long-term treaty with another country that, you know, you might have an adversarial relationship with. One of the really interesting things, there's tons of interesting stuff in this paper, um, but the the really interesting take-home and and where they did a lot of original uh, analysis and research is this, answering this question of like, how long would it take for our top-of-the-line chips to include the kinds of on-chip governance uh, techniques that we would need them to, the on-chip governance capabilities. So these might be things like verifying that uh, only certain kinds of data are being processed on the chip, or verifying that um, a model of a maximum size is being trained, uh, verifying that certain kinds of calculations are actually happening on the chip, um, and so on and so forth, and then the ability to do even remote shutdown and things like that. Um, so they surprisingly, a lot of these measures they conclude you could implement like pretty soon on the order of months from now because there are already on chip uh, mechanisms on uh, cutting edge GPUs, including the NVIDIA H1, H100, which is really, really important. So they see a lot of ways that we can kind of put points on the board rapidly in terms of adding optionality for policymakers who are making these negotiations. Um, but then also, uh, as you get into like, you know, preventing people from tampering with those mechanisms and um, making sure that you can detect, so making so-called tamper-evident devices that reveal that somebody has tried to tamper with them, uh, that's going to take a little bit longer um, on the order of variously like two to, in some cases, even eight years. But they have a great breakdown of the kinds of measures that you might want to build on these chips and how long we could realistically take expect those to take to get to production at scale. Um, So this is the first kind of research I've ever seen on this. Super, super relevant to the work that I personally do. And so I just thought this was really worth sharing. You know, if you're a policymaker and you're wondering about what are the options internationally, this is a great paper to read. Very interesting, I think, to me, this idea of, you know, building governance into the hardware is, Mm -hmm. yeah, like a reminder Yet again, of how sci-fi we are now, <laughs> where you know, coming from academia, I was used to looking at models and you know AI progress on problems. This is looking at like in the real world, can we make it so the hardware can have these levers? Because it is now, yeah, that big a deal, I guess. Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right. Like that's that's the big thing. The the paper also has, by the way, a whole bunch of recommendations for policymakers, um, including a new. This is a big ask, but I, it it does seem reasonable. A new executive order that would establish uh, a, a NIST-led interagency working group. So NIST is anyway one of the the big um, sort of standard setting bodies in the U.S. Um, that is focused on uh, building on chip governance mechanisms into all sort of export controlled data center AI chips. And there's a bunch of other stuff in there too um, about international coordination and so on. But I really recommend, you know, if you're into policy, uh, this is a really good thing to to read, and it'll give you a sense of what your options are.
And speaking of policymaking, moving on to the policy and safety section, our first story is U.S. companies and Chinese experts engaged in secret diplomacy on AI safety. And this is according to the Financial Times. So the story is that companies like OpenAI, Anthropic, and Cohere had meetings, I don't know if they're secret meetings, but had meetings in Geneva in July and October last year, where these companies uh, engaged with representatives of Tsinghua University and other Chinese uh, universities or state-backed institutions related to AI. And according to this news story, the uh, talks were about the risks from uh, emerging technology and kind of conversation around AI safety research, with the goal being to find a scientific path forward to safely develop more sophisticated AI. So, I don't know, yeah, kind of an interesting, you know, if this is really secret diplomacy or whatever this is, uh, need to know this happened, I guess. Yeah, this is sometimes known as track two diplomacy. So um, depending on context, it's often the case that governments will not directly sort of engage in government to government dialogue for various sort of uh, sensitivity reasons, you know, if, if the optics don't look great or, or whatever. So they'll sometimes you know, have a government representative from one side meet with a sort of corporate representative or a respected sort of elder statesman who's no longer officially with the government. That can be called a track 1.5 dialogue. Or if you have two non-government entities, then it's usually called track two. Uh, this seems like it could be the latter, um, or it could just be a completely kind of independent thing that these labs are doing, but there does seem to be some government uh, involvement here. This is especially interesting because we did see China sign on to the Bletchley Decla Declaration at the UK AI Safety Summit, and we have seen an increasing number of Chinese researchers sign on to various public statements, like the statement from the Center for AI Safety, the famous 22-word statement on AI being a source of catastrophic risk, same as bioweapons and nukes. Um, and so we're seeing more and more of this sort of thing, signs that frankly are really hard to interpret. Um, you know, is this the view of the CCP, like the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, uh, or is it the view of individual researchers? Really hard to tell. Uh, but seeing that engagement, you know, that does seem like a good sign because AI safety ultimately is going to be a global problem. And, you know, the risks that China bakes, we get to eat and vice versa. Um, and the last thing I'll mention, too, is we know that uh, Jeffrey Hinton um, has been doing a lot of outreach to China uh, independently. And so it's unclear whether it's tied into this uh, set of efforts as well, that, which seems to be more company led. But it's also interesting to note that's like another dimension of sort of, of communication on this issue, you know, academic to academic and not just corporate to academic or corporate to government or, or whatever. So a lot of different threads here. Um, hard to know where this leads, but certainly that that extra communication on this topic, um, I, I think, is a a good sign. Um, the anyway, there are interesting challenges about how much you can share in this context, but certainly for the the awareness raising side, uh, I think this is a really promising and interesting uh, development. To get into slightly more detail, uh, this was convened by the Shake Group, which is a private mediation organization that facilitates dialogue between key actors in regions of conflict. And that's quoting from the news story. And they say that they just saw the opportunity to bring together US and Chinese actors working on AI. The governments uh, were aware of these efforts, but were not uh, directly involved, it sounds like. So this was done with the knowledge of the White House and the UK and 
uh, some Chinese government officials, according to a negotiator who was present. So yeah, kind of an interesting story of someone, a private organization seemingly deciding they should do this, the government's kind of letting them, and there are being some conversations. Uh, again, another kind of sign of what a crazy year we had where someone felt the need to be like, let's bring in some people to talk from these two big countries. And up next, we have, um, I'm not sure what to call this, a story, a thing. Let's call it a thing. It, the thing is titled, China Cyberspace Security Association Releases First Batch of Chinese Basic Corpus. And it's not really titled that because the publication is in Chinese. It's not in, in I was going to say, it's not in American. <laughs> it's not in English. Um, so we, I actually had to like Google translate this to understand what the hell was going on. I became aware of this thing. Uh, from a tweet, I'm trying to remember uh, who it was from. I think it might have been Helen Toner um, on Twitter. She actually was the former OpenAI board member. She's actually uh, been really good at tracking the Chinese side of the equation here. Uh, this is all about a data set that was published by the Chinese government saying, hey, um, we approve this data set. This data set is approved for the training of language models. Um, they talk about how it involved you know, more than, as they put it, 100 million uh, pieces of data, not so sure what that means, uh, and 50 billion tokens. And just for, for contrast, um, so 50 billion tokens is actually a, a really small data set. Um, you, you know, look at GPT-4, for example, it's trained on well over a trillion tokens. Um, even Llama, the 13 billion um, parameter version was trained on 1 trillion parameters. So uh, this is like 5% of that. We're looking at a really, really small data set here. So it's it's unclear, and, and here I'm actually just um, uh, gesturing at some questions that Helen Toner raised on Twitter. It's really unclear, like, is there more coming? Like, we seem to be a you know, factor of 100 off from you know, training a cutting edge model with this sort of data set size. So, you know, is there actually more coming? Um, is it is it even uh, doable for the Chinese government to scrub data sets at the level of certainty that they'll want um, with the with the volume of data that they need to actually, you know, have a data set that can be used to train a frontier model? Um, all that's pretty unclear. But one interesting question that Helen raised as well, and, and sorry, this is basically just turning into Jeremy Reed's Helen Toner's Twitter feed. But uh, one interesting question that she raises is just like, it, does this end up making Chinese developers um, more nervous about using data sets that don't have the Chinese Communist Party's blessing? Right. So we have here a data set that is woefully inadequate to train anything close to a frontier model. But the fact that it exists kind of raises this awkward question like, OK, so this is the, the Chinese Communist Party approved data set. Are all other data sets implicitly unapproved? Like, what is the status here? It's really kind of an interesting question. And we also don't know how the data set was actually made and vetted. Um, the, yeah, the, the press release essentially that um, I ended up Google translating here was, as Helen puts it, it was super vague. There's not a lot of data. They just tell you how many tokens. They don't tell you how they collected it. Um, anyway, so it seems to have been a collaboration between government academia and the private sector, but that's all we really know at this point. Um, and it certainly is precedent setting. Like It raises a bunch of questions about, you know, is this the direction that the Chinese Communist Party wants to go um, as, it, uh, yeah, as it defines the, uh, the go-no-go areas for AI developers in China? And it again underscore how 
different the operating environment is in China versus the US, right? It wasn't until August of last year that there were big models, ChatGPT-esque models being launched in China. And it was after they got approval as opposed to in the US, right? We had OpenAI launched ChatGPT and we were just like, did it, right? And it was not meant to be even a big deal when ChatGPT came out. And then since then, we've had like 12 other chatbots, every private company just going for it. And, you know, the government uh, has been doing things, but not being so involved. Whereas in China, if you're doing AI or launching a chatbot, I guess you need to be a little bit more on your toes, it seems like. And this is just reinforcing that. Moving on to the lightning round, we have just a couple of stories, both on OpenAI. The first story is that OpenAI has banned the use of its AI tools for campaigning and voter suppression. So this is, yes, (laughs) how sad. No, it's an update uh, that's pretty recent, a clarification on its policies. And yeah, they just said that you cannot use the tools for campaigning and lobbying, and you cannot create chatbots for impersonate candidates and other real people. This is, of course, ahead of the 2024 elections in the US. And there's, uh, yeah, a lot of kind of movement across the industry, making clear how you can and cannot use AI with regards to uh, politics now. This is, I guess, one of, an example of that. And the other thing that's noteworthy about this story, too, is the company is saying that it's banning applications that discourage voting. So, for example, um, if you wanted to claim or get the chatbot to claim that voting is meaningless or doesn't move the needle or doesn't make a difference or whatever, um, that's a really interesting philosophical point. And, you know, this question of like, you know, well, what you know, what if voting is is meaningless in some context? You know, obviously, there's always this philosophical question that that we ask ourselves as voters every election: like, is it worth going out to the polls? Blah blah. And you can imagine having a very reasoned, calm, rational conversation about that. Um, that now is out of bounds, and uh, at least for chatbots. So, sort of an interesting. Um, little foray into defining like what kinds of conversations are okay for humans to have, but not necessarily for chatbots to contribute to. And um, anyway, uh, yeah, really kind of interesting note there. Yep. And last note is they did say they will start adding kind of watermarks to images generated by Dali, similar to what uh, Google is already doing. So I guess uh, another example of AI generating imagery, hopefully watermarking and being able to tell this came from Dali, this came from Imagine, et cetera, maybe will become standard as we head into elections. And then the other little tidbit on OpenAI and their policy updates, they also removed language from its usage policy that explicitly prohibited the use of technology for military purposes. So I guess now you can use it for weapons development and military and warfare. Uh, the new policy has a clause against uh, using a service to harm oneself or others. Uh, and it does have develop or use weapons as an example, but the kind of general ban on military use is gone. Yeah, and there's the predictable, I guess predictable, um, sort of unclarity 
uh, about the actual purpose behind this or, or you know, what this really means, um, it, there, there wasn't any clarification when they asked. So Nico Felix was the spokesperson at OpenAI who was asked about this. You know, he, he said, look, the, the change here was just part of a big rewrite we're doing on our policy page. We're just trying to make the document quotes clearer and quotes more readable. Um, but he didn't say specifically whether the harm that is referenced, the quotes harm that is referenced in the, uh, the new document, um, uh, with the ban on that includes all military use. And so, um, it's, it's sort of this interesting nebulous thing where it seems like they're maybe trying to just preserve optionality, uh, or just don't want to seem inconsistent in the, in the future if they end up uh, switching their approach, or, or maybe they're already working on stuff like this. You know, we know that they are interested in um, pursuing certain national security use cases, as they've put it, uh, and including uh, collaborating on cybersecurity tools with DARPA. So uh, it's really interesting, like, what, what are the bounds on this? What, what does this do uh, for, for OpenAI's position or, or their, uh, their appearance, let's say, their, the optics here? Um, but certainly, you know, you're going to want to see national security applications of AI to protect the country, um, if only because you're going to see more and more AI weaponized against the United States. Uh, so, so yeah, having opening on board may just be required for companies like that. But certainly, experts are chiming in and uh, and concerned that opening eyes, as you know, as as is being put here, is sort of like silently weakening uh, their stance against doing business with military. So. Um, interesting question about where this lands, but uh, certainly is a shift for OpenAI, at least in terms of their public messaging. And on to our last section, synthetic media and art. The first story is that musicians are set to begin contract negotiations with studios on AI, and that also will include uh, streaming priorities, not just AI. And this is about the American Federation of Musicians, AFM, will begin negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers with, uh, yeah, the focus being on a bunch of stuff, streaming residuals, wage increases, but also protections against AI. And uh, this covers musicians working on TV and film scoring with a contract uh, that was currently under discussion uh, that is going to expire in a few months. So yeah, another case of in the entertainment industry, uh, this big organizations uh, having conversations and trying to set a policy down on, I guess, uh, protections for musicians, likenesses, uh, and you know, their music being auto-generated, I guess, quite maybe similar to this whole thing of digital, digital replicas that exist for actors. Yeah, and they're citing the international president of AFM, this, as you said, American Federation of Musicians, um, who's, who's saying, look, th these negotiations might end up looking different from how they have in the past, like he's hinted at a pot potentially a work stoppage. Um, if the negotiations don't go well, obviously that is always what you do when you're negotiating in this context. Um, but we certainly did see quite a bit of disruption coming from the, the whole SAG situation. So this definitely, and you know, if you're if you're gonna um, if you're gonna make a stand or, or die on a hill, AI seems like a pretty important one because it, it will definitely be shaping the future of a lot of different media, uh, including including music. So. Yeah, interesting to see. I mean, this will be we, we just wrapped up with the whole SAG, uh, the whole SAG saga, uh, and we're now uh, seamlessly moving into the next one here as uh, as we figure out what AI generated content means for these industries. 
Next story, scammy AI-generated book rewrites are flooding Amazon. So this is highlighting an example that was shown on Twitter. Uh, Melanie Mitchell, an AI researcher, discovered that her book, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans, uh, was sort of replicated. There was this imitation book with the same title, and it was 45 pages long, and basically, yeah, recreated it with uh, presumably uh, chat uh, GPT type technology. Amazon removed the imitation book after being contacted by Wired, uh, stating that they do not uh, allow this. This is a violation of the content guidelines, seemingly. And it looks like there's more of this type of thing, AI-generated summaries uh, and so on being posted all over Amazon. Yeah, and you know, it's it's one thing with Melanie Mitchell obviously having a certain level of profile, um, along with some other um, researchers who, who've experienced similar things, like Fifi Lee. Um, but you know, one of the the risks that this points to is just the idea of volume, just like the volume you can generate with these AI systems. And Amazon, you know, at least for now, is not going to be able to automatically uh, confirm whether these things are AI generated in every case. There is a deep fake detection startup called Reality Defender that like run, ran a check of, the, of the, the book by Mitchell and confirmed, yeah, it's like 99% likely to be AI generated. But with the volumes that we're looking at here, uh, you know, e- even a way of 1% uh, means you will be blocking legitimate human written content every once in a while. And uh, that starts to introduce some real problems for Amazon getting flooded with these, you know, this torrent of AI generated content. Um, so yeah, I think that we're going to be learning an awful lot about you know, how good our detection tools are, the race between generation and detection, um, and uh, and then the resources that that consumes. Because now, you know, Amazon has a whole other operation they got to spin up to uh, detect these these things that, in principle, like has to eat into into profit margin. And just to give a concrete example, right? There was this. Uh... A book, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Humans, that was just an imitation, like directly same title, same everything, so it was taken down. There is also another entry, Summary and Analysis of the Worlds I See, the Worlds I See being the memoir by Fei-Fei Li, famous AI author. And that product says it's Summary and Analysis and has in the description, disclaimer, this is not a book by Fei Fei Li, <laughs> nor affiliated with them. It is an, an independent publication that summarizes Fei Fei Li book uh, in details. It is a summary and that seemingly there's more and more of that as well, like explicit summaries auto-generated by AI seemingly basically yeah, flooding, you know, spamming of the platform. Yeah, and actually, so this, by the way, is something that I've seen with my book. Uh, Quantum Physics made me do it. Available in fine bookstores everywhere. Um, the uh, the when you Google it, you'll actually see there's like a page where somebody has done exactly this, and I actually read through it, and um, you know, it's. It's pretty. It's not as good as the original book, sure, but uh, <laughs> but it you know it, it's pretty pretty reasonable. I mean, you, you can sort of tell it's AI generated, um, but you know, as the you know, GPT four becomes GPT five, you know, eventually this is going to become a real thing. Yeah, more and more spam. You know, it's just going to flooded yeah. with AI generated content, and it's it's beginning to happen, and it's going to keep happening unless we restrict it. And speaking of that. Uh, 
One last story for the section. Deep faked celebrity ads promoting Medicare scams run rampant on YouTube. AI clones of celebrities are being used in YouTube ads to promote Medicare and Medicaid scams. So far, with little intervention from uh, Google, according to 404 Media. And these ads have been viewed over 195 million times on YouTube. Uh, they've been uploaded mostly over the last few months and have been, I guess, a source of discussion with YouTube users and creators. Uh, so, for example, they use uh, AI voice cloning and deconnect, decontextualize videos of the celebrities to promote this thing called Relief Direct Aid. Uh, which is uh, something that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services actually warned about. So, yeah, another example of spamming with AI-generated content to make uh, some quick cash. Yeah, and like to, if if you're looking to calibrate your level of freakout, um, so you know, back in uh, was it 2016, the Russian election interference operation in the U.S. Um, they used humans to generate a bunch of content. And ended up reach, reaching, I think it was about 120 million people on Facebook, uh, and that was a you know you'll remember like a giant freakout. People were like, "Whoa, Russian election interference! Like this might have moved the needle in the election, and so on and so forth." Well, now we're looking at 195 million views on YouTube, right? So like th- this is this is in this one thing we're seeing for a scam, mind you, not election interference. We're seeing. More uh, impressions than than what came on uh, on Facebook from the 2016 campaign. So really, like big, big, big uh, delta there. And I, I think we're we're gonna, just going to see more of this, as you said, uh, Andre, earlier, but in a in an election context too. And with that, we are done with this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Last Week in AI. Once again, you can find our text newsletter with even more news stories, the stuff we didn't get around to at lastweekin.ai. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and make us feel nice. You can also reach out directly. Email us at contact at lastweekin.ai with any suggestions or thoughts. We would also really like that and we will try to reply, although it might sometimes take a little while. But more than anything, we love to know that people are actually listening and getting some benefit out of a podcast. So we would appreciate more than anything if you keep listening. 